You're going to love this. Just love it. Yep. Pacifica Radio's KPFK in Los Angeles. This is the Bradcast. As heard on 90.7 FM in Los Angeles, 91.7 FM in uh, the beautiful Oregon Central Coast, KYAQ, and coast to coast and around the globe on KPFK.org, on the Stitcher app, the TuneIn app, the iTunes the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, Radio or Not, Radio Free Brooklyn, and five days a week on Radio Sputnik. You can run, but you can't hide. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, and all-around swell fellow says me. From bradblog.com, thank you for joining us for another action-packed, thrilling adventure today. And yes, we do have one for you because the Supreme Court is still at it. They are still pumping out uh, decisions, opinions, before they wrap up for the year or for the session, I should say. Uh, And we've got uh, today a mix of both good and bad coming out of uh, SCOTUS. We'll get to that in a moment. Actually, you know what? We'll get right to it. Uh, because coming off of last week, an amazing week, an extraordinary week, the uh, the Confederate flag was, was coming down like overnight. You had a Supreme Court uh, ruling that uh, enforced Obamacare, so that won't be going away. That's good news, no matter what you feel about the law, frankly. That's good news because we've now got millions of Americans who can get health care who could not get health care before. So that was good news. Yeah, we can work on that law. We need to work on that law. We need a better law, but at least uh, we won't have millions of Americans rolling back the clock and being able to go with uh, being forced to go without health insurance. So that was good news. Uh, And then, of course, uh, the marriage equality ruling that ended the week uh, ended an extraordinary week, allowing Marriage equality for all in all 50 states. So that was the great news last week. One of the best weeks I remember in this country, but it underscored what I've been arguing for a long time, that we are now heading into a new progressive age. And we are. Uh, Despite some of the rulings today from the Supreme Court, one of them... Uh, is rather progressive and goes back to the uh, to the first progressive age back at the uh, turn of the 20th century when we began to allow for the initiative process, the ballot referendum process in this country. That was part of the progressive age from the beginning of the 20th century, and it came into play today. The U.S. Supreme Court bolstered efforts to make federal elections more competitive by upholding an independent commission set up by Arizona voters to draw congressional districts. The 5-4 ruling is a setback to Arizona Republicans who had hoped to redraw that state's district map 
and potentially capture, capture two more seats in the U.S. House of Representatives. They wanted to do it. The legislators in the uh, Republican-dominated Arizona legislature, they wanted to be the ones to decide how congressional maps are drawn so they could give themselves some more seats. But no, the voters had a different idea back in 2000 when they passed a referendum creating a, an independent commission, I should say a so-called independent commission, to do exactly that. We will, we will be talking about that so-called independent commission in a little bit with uh, my guest, who was, a, um, who was the first head of the state's Election Integrity Commission, as Arizona, I believe, was the first state in the country to actually create an Election Integrity Commission. And he was a, a big supporter of this uh, initiative to create the independent measure in Arizona by the voters back in 2000 that the Supreme Court has now upheld. So we will talk about that with him in a bit. Uh, more breaking news, not as encouraging, but still not as bad as it sounds, I think. The Supreme Court will allow coal plants to emit unlimited mercury. Power plants will be able to continue uh, will be able to continue to emit unlimited mercury, arsenic and other pollutants thanks to the Supreme Court decision today. Oh, brother. On Monday, uh, they invalidated the first ever U.S. regulations to limit toxic heavy metal pollution from coal and oil fired plants. This, too, was a five to four ruling that the so-called conservatives won in this case, striking down the EPA's mercury and air toxic standards, otherwise known as MATS, MATS, M-A-T-S, MATS. Yes. That's Desi Doyen, our producer and our uh, environmental expert on the broadcast. The EPA had been trying to implement this rule that cut down on toxic mercury pollution for more than two decades but the Supreme Court majority, written by my good friend, oh yes, <laughs> yes, Justice Antonin Scalia, said the EPA acted unlawfully because it failed to consider how much the regulation would cost the power industry before deciding to craft the rule. He wrote in uh, in the majority opinion that uh, the EPA must consider cost, including cost of compliance, before deciding whether regulation is appropriate and necessary. It will be up to the EPA to decide, as always, within the limits of reasonable interpretation, how to account for costs. Now, it should be pointed out the EPA did account for costs. They just did it in the second step of the process. Do I understand this correctly, Desi? Yeah. Rather than the first step of the process. Right. So so what happened is that like back in 2011, the EPA issued this rule, the first ever rule, as you noted, that limits mercury, mercury pollution from power plants. It's a very important thing to do because mercury is toxic. And it's the reason why pregnant women are told not to eat certain kinds of fish because mercury damages the brains of fetuses and children. So women, pregnant women, and children are supposed to limit their consumption of fish because we now know that coal-fired power plant mercury actually pollutes the waters of the United States and get taken up by fish. So this is why this is very important. 
Well, and it also uh, puts arsenic into the air. Right. And there are these, uh, so what happened was that yeah. this rule was going to save uh, thousands of lives, not just because of you know reducing the, the the toxic pollutants, the heavy metals that come from burning coal, but also as a side benefit, it would limit particulate pollution. That's little tiny pieces of soot that it can actually lodge into the heart and lungs and cause asthma, cause heart attacks, cause strokes. So they realized, the EPA said... That limiting this kind of pollution will have will save billions of dollars in public it health benefits. It will save thirty-seven to ninety billion dollars a year in various types of uh, uh, monetized benefits annually, uh, health benefits, and so forth. The EPA uh, estimates that it will prevent eleven thousand premature deaths every year. Right. Uh, and because of the uh, the the uh, and IQ loss to children exposed to mercury in the womb would also be reduced. And there was no real quibble about that, I don't think, no, other there- than when they did it yes. in the process. So, so what happened is that the EPA said that it didn't have to consider the cost of controlling these emissions when it decided whether or not it should control them in the first place. It didn't think of costs. All it did was look at public health, which is what the EPA agency's mandate is, mm-hmm. public health. So it said, all right, should we reduce these toxic mercury pollutants? Yes, we should. It's important for public health. That's the first stage, deciding whether or not to do it at all. The second stage is when they actually try to write the regulations, try to figure out how to regulate the, the, these toxic mercury and arsenic and other pollutants. And that's when they consider the cost to industry of doing so, the cost versus the benefit. So that's what Scalia and the rest of the so-called conservatives on the Supreme Court did. They said, no, you have to do it in the first stage when you're deciding whether or not to regulate these pollutants. In the first place, you must consider the cost. This was a technicality. Right. I mean, this is, you know, the EPA justified that this would cost $9.6 billion a year for this proposed rule, cost $9.6 billion to industry, but $37 to $90 billion in yearly benefits from the loss of uh, you know health costs and so forth, not to mention those lives. So, uh, you know, uh, here's Scalia, my good friend uh, Antonin Scalia, said, it is not rational, never mind appropriate, to impose billions of dollars in economic costs in return for a few dollars in health or environmental benefits. No regulation is appropriate if it does significantly more harm than good. And, of course, this does not do significantly more harm than good. Again, EPA uh, estimated $9.6 billion it would cost the industry, but it would save the country $37 to $90 billion a year in benefits and lives. But then again, Antonin Scalia doesn't give a damn about lives as we'll find out in a moment concerning his death penalty uh, decision here. But uh, here was uh, Chief, EPA Chief, uh, what's her name? Gina McCarthy. Gina McCarthy. From Boston. Right, from Boston. uh, (laughs) On uh, Bill Maher over the weekend on HBO, he asked her, well, what happens if the Supreme Court uh, nixes this rule that has, by the way, they have been working on it for, I think, almost 30 years. Years since the Clean Air Act passed, the 1990 version of the Clean Air Act. Uh, here was her response. What would happen if the uh, if the Supreme Court turned down the rule? What do you think is going to happen? And what if they rule the wrong way? Well, we're in a roll. 
Uh, so I think we'll do pretty well. We did a great rule. This is a rule that actually regulates toxic pollution emissions from primarily coal facilities. And uh, we think we're going to win because we think we did a great job on it. But even if we don't, it was three years ago. Most of them are already in compliance. Investments have been made and will catch up. And we're still going to get at the toxic pollution from these facilities. Yeah, I, I mean, yeah. So is she saying that it's already uh, largely in place, that this mercury rule they've been working on it for so long, industry has been trying where they can to comply with it, yes. or they have just shut down coal plants either. Well, they like to claim is because they couldn't comply with these new rules, but in fact, it's because nobody wants to use coal anymore. Yeah. Uh, the cheapness, frankly, of natural gas, thanks to fracking, uh, has brought down uh, you know, the, the price of that and has raised the price of coal in the bargain. So, you know, she she's saying that uh, we're we're OK anyway. But the bigger point here is I think that they can now go back, start the process over again. Hopefully it doesn't take another 30 years. Yeah. But that they can go back and um, create this rule the right way. Yes, and right and of quotes. course, once they do that, then the industry is going to find another avenue from which they can challenge this all will. the way to the Supreme Court until finally they run out of exits in order to prevent these. That's rules what from they going do. Through. They're not trying to prevent it. They're trying to delay. They're doing everything they can to delay this rule. Right. They know it's the right thing to do, but because corporations who are not people also don't give a damn about people. They're supposed to, you know, by law, their fiduciary duty is to stockholders, to the profit motive, period. And, um, you know, so they don't care about saving lives, uh, which is why we need government, frankly. Anyway, we're going to talk a lot more about this new rule uh, or uh, this former rule at this point tomorrow and a, a remarkable ruling that happened last week in Europe that a lot of people haven't noticed because there was so much going on here in the U.S., uh, concerning greenhouse gases and emissions. We're going to talk about all of that, I think, on tomorrow's show, barring any other breaking news uh, with our guest, uh, Michael Gerard. Yes, think, he's uh, chief of the Climate Law School program at Columbia Law School. It's, right. a, it's a huge program. These are some very big deals, so it'll be good to get his perspective it on will, what's going will, and on. I was actually hoping to do it today, but for all this breaking news out of the Supreme Court. So... Uh, speaking of that, we have still more. Supreme Court has upheld Oklahoma's lethal injection process. According to Reuters here, the U.S. Supreme Court on Monday ruled that a drug used by Oklahoma as part of its lethal injection procedure does not violate the U.S. Constitution's ban on cruel and unusual punishment. Another 5-4 to four decision with the conservative justices in the majority handed a loss to three inmates who objected to the use of a sedative called midazolam, saying it cannot achieve the level of unconsciousness required for surgery, making it unsuitable for executions. Justice Samuel Alito wrote on behalf of the court that the inmates had, among other things, failed to show that there was an alternative method of execution available that would be less painful. That's right. He left it to the uh, to the condemned inmates to come up with a different way that they could be killed that would be less painful. And since they weren't able to come up with one, he thought it was just fine uh, as is. Uh, yeah, this may uh, cause you excruciating pain. It may be cruel punishment in violation of the Eighth Amendment, but we don't give a damn because you couldn't come up with anything else. 
Uh, the three-drug process used by Oklahoma prison officials has been under scrutiny since April 2014 when there was a, boxed, a botched execution of convicted murderer Clayton Lockett. He could be seen twisting on the gurney after death chamber staff failed to place the intravenous line properly. Well, there's nothing cruel about that. You couldn't come up with a better way to do it, so, you know, it's not cruel. Uh, the main question before the nine justices is whether the use of that drug violates the Constitution's Eighth Amendment prohibition on cruel and unusual punishment. Uh, the case did not address the constitutionality of the death penalty in general, but it brought fresh attention to the ongoing debate over whether the de death penalty should continue in the U.S. at a time when most developed countries have abandoned it. And that's, uh, you know, that's true. We did not always have the death penalty in this uh, in this country. Um, the Supreme Court in 1976 reinstated it in America, finding that its use did not constitute cruel and unusual punishment. But this is by no means settled law, Despite what Scalia had to say about it, my good friend, he wrote, Our decisions in this area have been animated in part by, re by the recognition that because it is settled that capital punishment is constitutional, it necessarily follows that there must be a constitutional means of carrying it out. Well, of course, it is not settled in this country that it's constitutional. But he wanted to get that in there, you know, for, for future decisions, for future courts. Just let's pretend it's uh, constitutional. Also, these aren't the droids you're looking for. Let them pass. He writes, because some risk of pain is inherent in any method of execution, we have held that the Constitution does not require the avoidance of all risk of pain. After all, while most humans wish to die a painless death, many do not have that good fortune holding that the Eighth Amendment demands the elimination of essentially all risk of pain would effectively outlaw the death penalty altogether. Oh. Can't have that. No, no, we can't have that. Now, Breyer, Justice Breyer, with Justice Ginsburg uh, concurring in the minority dissent, they noted that they now believe the death penalty is unconstitutional in all circumstances. And this is why I say that uh, though this decision is uh, ugly and terrible, uh, it could be much worse, and it's actually encouraging. They say, and I think this may be for the first time, that uh, the death penalty itself may be unconstitutional, may violate the Eighth Amendment. Both Justices Stephen Breyer and Ruth Bader Ginsburg joined the two other liberals on the court in the dissent that suggested that states would be able to burn prisoners at the stake under the majority's ruling on Oklahoma's use of lethal injection drugs because, hey, if they can't find anything else other than burning them at the stake, that would be perfectly constitutional. You can't come up with a better solution, so we're allowed to do it. Uh, no. Breyer also wrote in his dissent, uh, along with uh, being joined by Ginsburg, um, that the death penalty in any form may be unconstitutional. He wrote that he believed it was, quote, highly likely that the death penalty violates the Eighth Amendment. And he called for the court to address that, quote, basic question in the future. He suggested that the decline of the death penalty made it an unusual punishment for the past 40 years. 
has been, uh, and he said it has been, quote, imposed arbitrarily. It certainly has. He cited studies suggesting that individuals who murder, who murdered white victims were more likely to receive the death penalty and said that geography also played a major role in who is put to death. He said that after, quote, considering thousands of death penalty cases and last-minute petitions in more than 20 years on the bench, there were discrepancies for which I can find no rational explanation. Good for him. Justice Antonin Scalia, of course, took issue with Breyer's dissent, calling it, quote, gobbledygook. This is the guy. This is the guy sitting on the Supreme Court. And he's, you know, talking like he's some jackass pundit on Fox News. Gobbledygook. Pure applesauce was what he said last week. Jiggery pokery. Jiggery pokery. Man. Uh, anyway, uh, it's gobbledygook. And uh, he went on to write that the death penalty did have a significant deterrent effect in his view. Of course, he can't show it in studies because, you know what? There is no deterrent re- uh, effect to the death penalty. It costs money. costs a lot more money than keeping them alive. A lot more money. Ten times more money to kill these prisoners than it does to uh, just keep them uh, in jail for life. It also happens to be barbaric and disgusting and a great shame on these United States of America. But not to guys like Scalia and Alito, because, oh, they love this stuff. All right. Uh, And, you know, we had a couple of weeks ago, by the way, the uh, uh, state rep Al Davis. Remember that from uh, Nebraska? A Republican, the first Republican state to outlaw the, uh, the death penalty. And, you know, to say enough is enough. So we're seeing state after state after state putting an end to the death penalty. And uh, that is making it more and more unusual for it to happen at all. A lot of other states that uh, still have the death penalty aren't able to put people to death because they can't get these drugs anymore because these drug companies won't sell them to kill people. So it's becoming more and more unusual as per the Eighth Amendment, and obviously it is very cruel. Okay, Uh, so some uh, bad news there, but maybe some mixed blessings in disguise in the Supreme Court sessions ahead. We'll find out. But back to Arizona. Now we're going to take a quick break and come back with Ted Downing, former Arizona state legislator, formerly a Democrat, now an independent, to find out what this big ruling, which I think is unambiguously positive, concerning uh, redistricting in Arizona and everywhere else in the country and why it matters above and beyond redistricting. All of that is straight ahead. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your Bradcast. Please stay tuned. Hey, this is Brad. Do you enjoy your non-corporatized, commercial-free Bradcast? Yeah, me too. But we need your help to stay that way. Please consider supporting the investigative blogging, broadcasting, and muckraking that we do here on the Bradcast and the Green News Report and bradblog.com with a donation. It's easy. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate and drop a few dollars in the tip jar. 
You can make a one-time contribution or an automatic monthly donation of any amount you like. It's easy. It'll take you about 60 seconds and you'll help me and Desi stay on the air to continue our troublemaking and muckraking without the corporate influence of anyone. Got it? Thanks. Stop by bradblog.com slash donate to help us out today. This is for you, Mom. I love you, Arizona. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Your mountain. Brad Friedman Desert from bradblog.com. It's one of my mom's favorite songs since moving to Arizona. Yeah, it's kind of a terrible song, but you know, I love my mom. So there you go. You're welcome. Uh, okay, uh, we are about to get to uh, Arizona, and you'll understand why I was playing that song in a moment. But still more breaking news while we were on break here. Uh, the Supreme Court has now put a hold on a Texas ruling that would have closed most abortion clinics in the state while the clinics are allowed to appeal that case. So that's some good news from the Supreme Court. Uh, I'll take it. We'll learn uh, more about that, I suspect, uh, as the day and the week goes on. In the meantime, some news that I consider uh, very good out of the Supreme Court. We'll see if my uh, guest coming up, Ted Downing, does. But uh, according to the uh, the decision released earlier on Monday, under Arizona's Constitution, the electorate shares lawmaking authority on equal footing with the Arizona legislature. The voters may adopt laws and constitutional amendments by ballot initiative, and they may approve or disapprove by referendum measures passed by the legislature, according to the Arizona state constitution. Quote, any law which may be enacted by the legislature may be enacted by the people under the initiative process. Well, good. In 2000, Arizona... Arizona voters adopted Proposition 106, an initiative aimed at the problem of gerrymandering, which is the process of changing around congressional districts to get a, a, a better partisan outcome for whoever happens to be in charge of the legislature at the time that they do the gerrymandering. But Proposition 106 amended Arizona's Constitution, removing the redistricting authority from the Arizona legislature, invested it in an independent commission. Maybe I should add a so-called independent commission, but we'll call it for now. The, it's called the Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission. After the 2010 census, as after the 2000 census, the commission adopted redistricting maps, as they do every 10 years for congressional as well as state legislative districts. The Arizona legislature challenged the map that the commission adopted in 2012 for congressional districts, arguing that the commission and its map violated the elections clause of the U.S. Constitution, which provides that the time, places and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, as opposed to one of these independent commissions. Because legislature means the state's representative assembly, representative assembly, the Arizona legislature, which is controlled by Republicans, contended that the, the, the constitutional clause precludes an independent commission created by an initiative to accomplish redistricting. 
Well, the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 to four decision, disagreed with the Arizona legislature. They found that the elections clause and uh, 2 U.S.C. of the uh, United States uh, United States uh, Code permit Arizona's use of a commission to adopt congressional districts. Redistricting is a legislative function, they found, but it's to be performed in accordance with the state's prescriptions for lawmaking, which, in the case of Arizona, includes the referendum process. They go on to say there is no constitutional barrier to a state's empowerment of its people by embracing that form of lawmaking, that very much direct uh, direct democratic, small d democratic form of lawmaking. And uh, a lot of the analysts that I've seen today say this is good news, not just for redistricting in Arizona and in other states that also use a, a similar commission, but it's also good news for the referendum process overall, because had the Supreme Court decided the other way, it seems, then, you know, referendums that called for, you know, the right to vote in the state constitution where this referendum was passed, you know, defining what the right to vote is, those would have to be thrown out as well. All kinds of rules regarding elections are put into state constitutions by referendum. They would have had to been thrown out had the Supreme Court decided the other way. Here to talk about all of this is former Arizona Democratic state uh, legislator. He is now an independent. He also formerly headed the state's Electoral Integrity Commission, which, if I'm not mistaken, was the first Electoral Integrity Commission uh, in any state in the country uh, put together by the state legislator legislatures. Um, Two years ago, he won the Anti-Corruption Award from the independent voting group, independentvoting.org. He is now a professor of social development at University of Arizona, specializing in governance. Always good to have him on the show. Ted Downing, welcome, sir, to the broadcast. Hey, Brad. Busy, busy day. Yeah, it, and, uh, it is. Yeah, you're right. This avoided uh, a complete train wreck if the court had had affirmed this and ruled in Arizona legislature's favor, it would have created a trade wreck, not just on election law, but on referendums and initiatives, everything. Yeah, I think it really would have. And I know you've got some specific thoughts about what's going on in Arizona and this specific so-called independent commission. We could talk about that in a little bit, but I just want to get some idea from you. Uh, you have been working, I think you supported uh, this measure back in 2000, the ballot measure, if I recall. And I know that I you sure have been... You have been working on, uh, you know, other reform measures, election integrity measures ever since then. So just on a basic level, is this good news for uh, the country in general and Arizona specifically as you see it, Ted Downing? It's good news. It does reaffirm that the power of the initiative, the power of referendum, that's very important, wider than election issues. And, uh, but it, and it does reaffirm Arizona's basically a progressive state. It began as a progressive state, and uh, it decided that the power should lie first in the people. That's what our Constitution says. Second, in any of the three branches of government. So it reaffirmed our own constitutional position that, uh, that certainly uh, the people's power stands first before their elected representatives, if that's really what it did. I have some problems with the, with the ruling itself and the way Justice Ginsburg described it. And that's where we get to the the but, the big but. Uh, so in general, it, this is a good thing. Uh, and you're right, by the way, uh, it was the turn of the uh, 20th century, uh, I think 1911, if I recall from, from Ginsburg's uh, uh, majority opinion here. 
It was, uh, an, uh, you know, a progressive, the, the beginning of the first progressive age in the early 20th century that allowed the people to have a direct say in lawmaking with this referendum process. So, uh, yeah, and, and Brad, remember, yeah. we allowed women to vote in Arizona before they could vote nationally. Really? Well, that no. that's going to that's going to have to stop. I've seen I've seen what the Republicans are doing out there. They they won't have any of that. They'll stop that soon enough. But in the meantime, so things yeah. are going. So this is all uh, good news in that very general sense. But in a more specific sense, you ain't so happy with this decision, Ted Downing. Am I right? I'm pleased with it, but I think the reforms go on. There's a misinterpretation going on that this kind of resolves the issue of gerrymandering, mm. and I actually think it makes it worse. Uh, the reason is people don't understand how this independent redistrict commission actually works in Arizona. It's stated in the opinion, but it hasn't been stated very much in the press. Mm -hmm. uh, the, it's, it's a so-called independent redistricting. What happens really is the majority and the minority leaders of the House and Senate select the four commissioners. Those people are as highly partisan as you can possibly get in the state. And then the four new commissioners that are appointed by the legislature select an independent. And the whole fight that goes on is whether or not those independents are leaning Republican or Democrat. Arizona is a state where the majority of the voters are independent. The second largest block is mm -hmm. Republican and Democrat. And they're both declining as a percentage of the voters. So we have the, most of the voters are unaffiliated, but they have no rights or no position in this independent redistricting commission. It's quasi-independent from the legislature. The legislature still picks four of the five. So this is so it's a five-person commission, and Republicans pick two, Democrats pick two, and then those four, do I understand you correctly, those four then pick the one single in, so-called independent? Yeah, and we have ladies and gentlemen in waiting that are, you have to be independent for three years, and, and highly partisan people shift their registrations and wait to be selected, depending on who can muscle who out among the four. Uh, what happened in this case was the, uh, the commission that, and by the way, they redistrict both the legislature and the congressional districts. Mm -hmm. And in Arizona, what happened was that we had three competitive districts picked those three were have democratic uh uh members in the in the house uh that was one or two more than the republicans wanted to see so they essentially took this uh, case to court uh in the legislative side you had five or six competitive districts that were selected and the big question for anybody who's looking at redistricting is there's two questions first is who selects you know, who's on the commission to do the redistricting? The second is, how is it done? And what happened in this case was that the, uh, you know, the big game is not the fact that there were three out of ten congressional competitive districts mm -hmm. or five out of 30. The question is to flip it upside down. Why only three of the ten com uh, congressional districts? Why are only three competitive? Mm -hmm. And why are, are 25 non-competitive in the legislative race? That tells you that, that that partisan, highly competitive, independent redistricting commission allowed at the beginning, before they did anything, they allowed seven congressional districts to be safe districts for either Republicans or Democrats, and they allowed 25 of our 30 legislative districts to be 
solely electing either Democrats or Republicans. A deal is cut, a dirty, dark deal, where politicians who avoid the most frightening word in the political language that politicians are afraid of is no, no insults about actions, uh, issues. What they're terrified of is elections. And these non-competitive districts assure them that they will be elected in the primary, that they will face no general election threat, and therefore the gerrymandering continues, and in this case it's institutionalized in the way we did our independent redistricting commission. I supported it at the beginning, but now I think it was a mistake. It has to be reformed more. Well, it, uh, it did the referendum itself that passed in 2000, is that the, uh, did that referendum specifically say how this commission should be created, that it'll have yes, two Republicans, two Democrats? Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. It said basically that the, the leaders, the uh, majority and the minority leaders of the House and the, and the Senate in Arizona will select the first four commissioners. So you know they're going to be the closest, most partisan friends sure. of the legislature. And, and so this, this, there's nothing independent about this independent commission, except technically it's independent from the legislature, but the legislature points it. But they're the ones who, who picked them. And, and so what you're saying, and, and I understand this part, that... Uh, uh, that essentially this so-called uh, independent commission is actually, uh, you know, a, a duopoly run by the Republicans and the Democrats with a gentleman's agreement. Um, and, and it needs to be rethought, restructured and done a different way. And I'd like to get your opinion on a better way to do it well, in a moment. But hang on. Well, no. Well, let me ask you this. So it, it needs to be restructured. But at least what the Supreme Court said today is that the people, if they want to, if you Ted Downing or the uh, you know the independent folks who you work with, and I know and I know personally, by the way, a lot of people you know when they hear the word independent, they think oh he's really a Democrat in disguise or a Republican in disguise. I know I know the people you've worked with. I've known you for over the years that you work with Republicans, Democrats, Libertarians, Greens, uh, you know, and, and so you really are independent. But the Supreme Court, they say okay. The people can decide it by referendum. And if you don't like the referendum, Ted, if you don't like the way the independent commission is put together, it's good news. You we could do another could do one. a different but one. Look yeah. what, but here's the fear I have. Yeah. Justice Ginsburg, in the first sentence of her ruling, says this case concerns an endeavor by Arizona voters to address the problem of partisan gerrymandering the drawing of legislative districts to subordinate adherents of one political party and entrench a rival in power. Mm -hmm. Political parties are not in the U.S. Constitution. They can appear in Supreme Court rulings. She has given standing and power to political parties in the redistricting process by the way she phrased how this ruling was done. Likewise, Loretta Lynch, the Attorney General, mm -hmm. claims, and here's her quote, it vindicates the right of voters who want their, electrical district, their electric, electoral districts drawn fairly, independently, and without due emphasis on partisan affiliation or political creed. Brad, I just explained how it works. Partisan affiliation is critical and part of parcel of the way we do it in Arizona. It's not in California, but I think they've strengthened the power of political parties on both sides, Democrats and Republicans should be celebrating 
because now they've got their head deeper into the U.S. Constitution. Oh, oh, you're such a negative Nelly, Ted Downing. <laughs> no, no, no. I'm, I, I'm, a, I'm a power to the people type. Well, I and know. Especially with 44% of this country independent yeah. that's not a member, we, that our electing system is under complete control and you have electoral laws of the political parties. And I completely and, uh, I completely agree with you. Well, I don't actually completely agree with you because no. okay. it's not under the complete control of the parties because as we see the people if they want can put together an initiative uh, process and put get, get a ballot re- you know on there for a referendum and change the constitution, change the state Absolutely. constitution, that's the US constitution. Me up in the morning. Yeah. Yeah, you got it. That's that's what gets me awake in the morning. If the power wasn't still residing in the people, or it should be, uh, it wouldn't be worth fighting. It wouldn't be worth even uh, even reading Brad's blog. Well, but and that's I th- where it is, and that's where it goes. And I think that's important to keep in mind because I think a lot of people hear these conversations, Ted, and they think, "Oh, the system is rigged. Democrats and Republicans. There's nothing we can do about it. Don't bother to vote. Don't bother to show up. Don't bother to change the process. The game is rigged." And yes, the game is rigged. In many ways. But there are ways for people to put their foot in the door and to change the game. And I think that, uh, you know, ultimately it can be changed in Arizona so that it is more to Ted Downing and the people's liking. And to that end... Yeah, more, more aligned. I think what happens yeah. with gerrymandering and redistricting, what we have to realize there's multiple models out here. Mm-hmm. The California model is probably better than the Arizona model. Don't let words like independent get in your face. Mm-hmm. It could mean many, many things. And the fact that it's an independent commission, you have to ask independent from what? I mean, you know, there's, there's real core questions here. Two quick questions is, who does the redistricting and how is the deal done? And you know it's not working right. You should design new systems. You know it's not working right if this, what I call the dirty deal, is done before redistricting, where you provide safe districts for both sides. Mm-hmm. You know, there, it's a, what I decide, if you're on one side of the fence, I'm on the other side of the fence of the aisle. I'll decide to pass some of the members of my party into your district, I mean, excuse me, my party from your district into mm-hmm. mine and vice versa, so that neither one of us face a competitive challenge. That's disenfranchising all of the Republicans. If you're Republican, uh, excuse me, you're Democrat, we're disenfranchising every Republican in this district, and you're disenfranchising every Democrat in mine so that we maintain power. That's wrong. That's a disenfranchisement. It's as wrong as every other voting issue we've had in the United States concerning women, the right of blacks to vote, the right of non-property people to vote. Mm-hmm. This is a big one, and that's my right to be properly represented. Every 10 years, we, sit, we lay down these districts. They disenfranchise hundreds, millions of people. That's an issue that still has to be fought. Ted Downing, you as a uh, as a state legislator at the time, a Democrat, and I know since then you have changed state law. You have worked uh, to improve the uh, electoral integrity of the state of Arizona. And so, uh, what is your plan, Ted? If this is no good, as at least as far as the specifics of this. Uh, so-called independent commission that was uh, ratified, if you will, today by the Supreme Court. What's the what's the plan, Ted? What are you going to do let's, to let's, put a, a better uh, c- referendum it's, forward? It's time to. It's every state, every municipality, all the way every county. There's always room for improvement in how we govern ourselves. In this case, we have to improve the way we're represented. The redistricting question is critical. 
right now you have even at the level of, of counties, mm-hmm. you have county commissioners defining their own district. What a huge conflict of interest. Right. They decide who votes for it. The concept that politicians pick their voters, that has to be a major number one issue to knock off the fence. Well, how do we fix it? We begin one step at a time. You can fight at the county level to make certain that there's that the county doesn't redistrict itself. You have to identify the conflict of interest. But uh, I guess, wrong. Ted, what I'm saying is, if the yeah. legislature is, uh, you know, and they're in this case minority. Uh, I'm sorry, majority Republican in you know California. It's majority Democrat. If the legislature is not going to actually do the redistricting, and if an independent commission can be gamed in the way it selects its commissioners. And and I completely agree when I hear people saying, oh, it's independent. Nonsense. Nobody is truly independent, at least not when you've got political parties picking these so-called independent people. So if it, it you know, if, if that's no good, how do we draw uh, congressional maps, Ted? What, tie, what's t- the solution? Tie your tennis shoes on, get your clipboards and hit the streets. We have to create initiative then the states where we can do it initiatives and referendums that allow redefinitions of how we redistrict but how should they be how should they be done should it be done randomly what do we yeah no arizona has the way here's that gets the question of how you redistrict in arizona we go through the next thing is the question of what are the criteria for the redistricting in arizona we have the first thing we do is we draw districts that have equal population and that are compact and contiguous, just almost at random. Mm-hmm. You say, you know, we wanted to have so many people, each one has to have the same amount, that's by the U.S. US law, and do we have equal numbers of people and they're compact. If we stopped right there, we could end up with some very competitive districts, especially if we drew them at random. Mm-hmm. But that's the problem is the next level. After we do that with our redistricting commission, then you're allowed a set of other steps to change those districts. They have to comply with the U.S. Constitution and the Voting Rights Act. They have to respect communities of interest. What the hell those are, nobody knows. Okay, but you have to respect them. You have to incorporate geographic features like a mountain or a river and things like that. Mm-hmm. And finally, and if it doesn't violate any of the previous things, you do a competitive district. My point is that the districts are drawn ahead of time as safe districts and divvied out, and then we get the public to to focus only on what's happening in, quote, the competitive districts, unquote. And you're saying that if if instead we started with sort of a random, uh, you know, making a grid, essentially, on the state, uh, and then adjusted that grid, well, we need more people in this district, so we'll move this over, but not uh, looking at their partisan makeup. Flipping coins. Yeah. those district boundaries flipping coins. So we would do a better uh, job decide, if, if this was done by random than the way exactly. we do it now. Exactly. And then the, you change the whole tenor of an election because now you can't assure yourself that you're going to have Republicans or Democrats in your district. Uh, it's the flip of the coin to decide which side of the street somebody's on. So uh, it's, it's possible to do it. It's easy to do it. It's happened. We have mathematical models of showing how it can do it, and you can come up with a nobody actually right now. If you ask people what districts are on, most people don't even know. They don't know where the district bounds here, John. Is there so any the effort con- in the in in Arizona 
to change that initiative, to change the current uh, in independent commission process so that it is something more like what you're talking about, Ted Downey, more like a, a random draw of the state. Is there any effort moving forward for that at this point? I'm not yet, but I'm hoping, you know, and uh, we need people that to really believe in, in our system of government uh, that are, are trying to get beyond the partisanship. And I have no trouble with people being members of party. I do have trouble with people disenfranchising other people based on their party, and that is wrong in any dimension of, the, of, of our country, our Constitution. Well, and it'll be... We've yeah, slightly, slightly, perhaps, slightly harder for that to happen uh, thanks to the Supreme Court decision today, even with all the problems that continue in places like Arizona, California, and, and elsewhere. At least you guys can get busy and try to fix things, and that's yeah. my main and, concern. And Justice Ginsburg did say something positive in her ruling, which I stand by, uh, even though I had trouble with the other part of it. She says the core principle of Republican government, namely, is that Voters should choose their representatives and not the other way around. She's got it. On that, we can agree. Ted Downing, always great to talk to you, sir. Uh, Ted Downing, former Democratic state legislator, now an independent, former head of the state's Electoral Integrity Commission, uh, and uh, now a uh, professor of social development at University of Arizona uh, Ted, always great to talk to you. I'm sure we'll be doing it again soon because Arizona is always in electoral trouble. <laughs> Tie your tennis shoes, hit the streets, get those clipboards. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Okay, one more note before we get to our break here. Um, <laughs> this uh, Chief Justice Roberts was the one who wrote the uh, dissenting opinion in this Arizona case. And uh, as Ed Kilgore over at Washington Monthly observes, the remarkable use of colloquial and incendiary language by conservative dissenters continues even in this decision. And this wasn't Scalia talking now. This was Chief Justice Roberts. Uh, he wrote, just over a century ago, Arizona became the second state in the union to ratify the 17th Amendment. That amendment transferred power to choose United States senators from the legislature of each state to the people thereof. The, amend the amendment resulted from an arduous, decades-long campaign in which reformers across the country worked hard to garner approval from Congress and three-quarters of the states. What chumps, writes Roberts. Didn't they realize that all they had to do was interpret the constitutional term the legislature to mean the people? The court today performs such a magic trick with the elections clause. What chumps. Man. Like I said, it's uh, it's 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 Fox News with a much nicer building. That's what the Supreme Court is uh, turning into these days. All right, quick break, and we're going to come back with. Oh, speaking of Fox News, Trump momentum continues. Yes, you heard me right. I'm Brad Friedman. This is your broadcast. Stay tuned. <laughs> Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman of Bradblog.com. Yeah, that's the that's a theme song from The Apprentice. Uh, 
by the uh, OJs, I think it is. Uh, well, it, you won't get to hear that much more often, apparently, because it is now official. NBC says it is cutting its ties to Donald Trump, not because he's running for president, but over his derogatory remarks about immigrants. When he announced in a news conference about two weeks ago that he would be running for president, uh, he asserted that many immigrants coming across the border are rapists and they're bringing in drugs. So uh, NBC uh, has said, according to a Variety, now here this afternoon, that it will no longer carry the Trump-produced Miss USA and Miss Universe pageants, nor will he return to the long-running reality show The Celebrity Apprentice as he, uh, as he continues with his presidential bill, uh, a bid. Due to the recent derogatory statements by Donald Trump recording, uh, re regarding immigrants, NBC Universal is ending its business relationship with Mr. Trump. At NBC, respect and dignity for all people are cornerstones of our values, says NBC. Of course, Trump shot back that uh, NBC is weak. And like everybody else, they're trying to be politically correct. NBC will uh, support uh, disgraced journalist Brian Williams, but won't stand behind people that tell it like it is, as unpleasant as that may be. Oh, well. Uh, in the meantime, as I have told you about Donald Trump from day one, back when everyone was laughing and scoffing about uh, Trump getting in, calling it a publicity thing, saying he has absolutely no chance to win the, uh, you know, the the... Republican nomination, much less the presidency of the United States, I said, well, you uh, scoff at your own peril. And everybody, well, they did. They scoffed. And then came back the Suffolk University poll showing that Donald Trump had vaulted into second place in New Hampshire just behind Jeb Bush. Jeb with 14 percent, Donald Trump with 11 percent of likely Republican voters in New Hampshire in the primary uh, defeating uh, ahead of Scott Walker at 8 percent, Marco Rubio 7 percent, Ben Carson at 6 percent. Trump meant him, I said, and it, it was not just a single poll. It was not just an outlier. Now we have another poll, this one from CNN WMUR. Jeb Bush narrowly leads the field in, the, uh, in New Hampshire in the state set to host the first primary of 2016. But Donald Trump's gains in the uh, state suggest the billionaire businessman is establishing a following. The new CNN WMUR New Hampshire primary poll finds Trump at 11, just behind Jeb Bush at 16 percent, in an otherwise wide open contest for the Republican nomination for the president. Bush and Trump are followed by Rand Paul at 9 Scott Walker at eight, Carly Fiorina, Marco Rubio, both at six, Ben Carson, Chris Christie, each have five percent support. So you see, you laughed. You laughed. I'm telling you, he represents Donald Trump represents everything that uh, Republican base, base voters believe. But many of them are still afraid to say it out loud. Donald Trump is not afraid. He will say whatever he needs to say. And it is going over well with Republican voters. Uh, Trump uh, tops the list when New Hampshire GOP voters are asked which of the possible candidates they would not support under any circumstances. Twenty three percent have ruled him out entirely. 
So there's that. There's a big chunk of people who say, no, I would never vote for this guy. But there's also a bit. He came. He comes out number one. What is here? He Trump easily tops the field when asked which candidate voters think can best handle the economy. Twenty nine percent choose Trump. The next closest is Bush at 13 percent and everyone else has seven percent or less. Never mind the fact that Trump has had to declare bankruptcy four times. Uh, they don't care. Over at Fox News, they uh, they think he's just great. At least the people who tend to watch that. That same poll, by the way, finds that Hillary Clinton's sizable lead um, lead among Democrats in New Hampshire is also disappearing. It's now trimmed to single digits as Vermont Senator Bernie Sanders makes a strong push in a state that narrowly broke Clinton's way, reportedly, in 2008. Uh, to keep her campaign alive at the time. But now Clinton holds just an eight-point edge over Sanders with 40, 43% uh, behind Clinton and 35% backing Sanders. We may have a real horse race after all. We'll see. Yes, democracy matters. Go exercise some. My thanks, as ever, to my producer, Desi Doyen, today, to our booking goddess, Cynthia Cohn, and to my special guest, Ted Downing from Arizona. Always great to talk with Ted. Uh, if you missed any portion of today's show, you can download it from uh, bradblog.com. You can download it from iTunes, where I hope you will go, uh, if nothing else, head on over to iTunes and, uh, and give us a five-star rating over there. It will help other people find the Bradcast. You can also drop me email anytime, bradcast at bradblog.com, positive or negative. That's fine. I'm just always happy to hear from you. You can and should follow me on the Twitters at the Bradblog. We're also the Bradblog over at Facebook. And I think that's it. Until we meet again, you can find me as always at bradblog.com. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world. I can't stand this here.